From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Time, and this hour, Donald Trump at CPAC, Ron Elving on the week in politics, IVF procedures on pause in Alabama after a state court decision, and many Republicans question USAID to Ukraine. So does Professor Stephen Walt of Harvard's Kennedy School, who says it's not isolationism, but restraint. The idea that Russia is somehow poised to strike into the heart of Europe, I think, is just fanciful. And Chicago's second city opens an outpost in the wilds of a place called New York. Do they have a sense of humor there? What's the best way to get to Carnegie Hall? First, we have our newscast. Today is Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. Nikki Haley has made her closing pitch to South Carolina GOP voters ahead of her home state's presidential primary today. She is polling far behind former President Donald Trump, but as NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, Haley is telling Republicans that she's playing the long game. On the eve of her home state's Republican primary, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley addressed supporters at a naval museum outside Charleston. With an aircraft carrier looming behind her against the sunset, Haley told voters that she can move the party and the country forward beyond Trump and Biden. I'm assuming every one of you wants to see a change in our country. But in order to do that, we have to nominate someone that can actually win a general election. Haley's campaign has announced a seven-figure ad buy targeting Super Tuesday states, and she says she'll continue regardless of the results in South Carolina. Sarah McCammon, NPR News, Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is among the world leaders sending messages of support to Ukraine on the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. Terry Schultz has the latest from Brussels. NATO Chief Stoltenberg pays tribute to the losses and the courage of Ukrainians. Two years after many in the West, even the alliance's own intelligence, indicated Kyiv may fall to the Russian assault within days. Ukraine did not collapse in weeks, as many feared it would. You have recaptured half the territories seized by Russia. Above all, Ukraine retains its freedom and independence. Stoltenberg calls the battlefield situation extremely serious, promising more aid is on the way. Noting the Kremlin has not changed its aim to dominate Ukraine, he says NATO hasn't changed its goal either. Ukraine will join NATO. It is not a question of if, but of when. He underscores that helping Ukraine win is a matter of NATO's own security. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. In a widely viewed video address, the widow of the late Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny has accused President Putin of holding her husband's body hostage. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt has more. Yulia Navalny, dressed in black, pulled no punches in a highly personal attack on Vladimir Putin that's been watched over half a million times in just hours. She again accused Russia's president of murdering her husband in an Arctic jail just over a week ago, something the Kremlin denies. You tortured him alive, and now you keep torturing him dead, she said. Alexei Navalny's widow accused Mr Putin of acting in a satanic, hateful way and of torturing Mr Navalny's mother too by trying to blackmail her into agreeing to a secret funeral without mourners. Faith matters in Russia. Yulia Navalny says this saga shows more clearly than ever that Mr Putin's is fake. The BBC's Danny Eberhardt. This is NPR News in Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Maura Healey is calling on for-profit health care company Stewart Healthcare to leave the state. The state had set a deadline of yesterday for the company to provide financial documentation, but what Stewart submitted was incomplete. Stewart runs nine hospitals in Massachusetts and recently disclosed severe financial problems. The company said in a statement that it recently finalized a $150 million refinancing agreement and is working to restructure its Northeast operations. Nearly two years after state lawmakers moved to divest from Russia, that pledge is still mostly unfulfilled. Following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, a 2022 state spending bill included a provision calling for divestment of state pension funds with investments tied to the country. That number was estimated at $140 million. Former Governor Charlie Baker also directed state agencies to review contracts for ties to Russian businesses. The Eagle Tribune reports that the state's pension fund still has about $140 million in investments tied to Russia. State officials hope a new terminal for constructing offshore wind turbines can open in the next two years. The terminal will be built on the Salem waterfront at the site of a former coal and oil-fired power plant. Salem Mayor Dominic Pangallo says he hopes construction will begin later this year. It's going to grow our commercial tax base and, importantly, help us contribute to solving our, our energy crisis, ensuring energy independence and also a clean energy future to address the climate crisis we're in. The state's first site for offshore wind farm construction opened several years ago in New Bedford. Members of one of Boston's largest unions are giving away thousands of school supplies today. Iron Workers Local 7 is giving away pencils, crayons, notebooks, backpacks, and more. Parents and teachers can stop by the Iron Workers Hall in South Boston to get the supplies. It's 39 degrees in Boston with increasing sunshine today and highs in the upper 30s. Low around 17 overnight. Sunny. Tomorrow, Sunday's highs in the upper 30s. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us today. It's now two years since Russia marched on Ukraine. Now that's testing American resolve in a moment. But first today, Donald Trump speaks at this year's Conservative Political Action Conference. CPAC has changed quite a bit since Trump rode down the escalator to announce his presidential campaign. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez joins us. Franco, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Scott. I can remember when CPAC was a, uh, a showcase for competing ideas within the conservative movement. What do we see now? I mean, it's really kind of a sea change, Scott. I mean, it really reflects how Trump has changed the party as well. I mean, last year, several of his rivals were booed. And this year, his only remaining rival, that's former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, is not even going to be there. I spoke with Demetrius Julius. It's his first CPAC. He's a doctor from Richmond, Virginia. And he says he feels a change. I mean, he compared it to the 60s and even started quoting Beatles lyrics. It is exciting because I think there's a change happening. Just like the 60s was exciting. You say you want a revolution, you know we all want to change the world. 
And, you know, Scott, that's the kind of energy that you feel from a lot of people here. I mean, it's really a celebration of Trump. Crowds are lining up to see his former chief of staff, Steve Bannon, who's been hosting his podcast here. And just to give you a little bit more perspective, I mean, this is a huge convention space just outside of Washington, D.C. And downstairs, they're selling T-shirts, hats. One vendor is selling shiny purses with Trump's name on it. And they even fit a big tour bus inside the building comfortably where attendees can write Trump's personal messages on it. Any indication of what Trump's uh, message is going to be? And, and, and by the way, why is this in CPAC when uh, the South Carolina Republican primaries today? Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. And because of that primary, you can expect that Trump's going to mention South Carolina and talk directly to those South Carolina voters. So he's likely going to bash Nikki Haley and encourage supporters to go out and vote. I did speak to Caroline Levitt, who's Trump's campaign press secretary, and I asked her, why is it so important to be in Washington, D.C. right now? To rally the base, rally the troops, get the president's message in the ears of the people that are on the ground in their communities getting votes out in their respective states and counties, not just now in this primary, but in the November general election as well. And they're very confident about the South Carolina results. And he wants to make sure, Trump that is, wants to make sure that they do not miss an opportunity to fire up the base, which is what CPAC really is. And that's why you'll probably also hear a lot of attacks against President Biden, which are really a cornerstone of every Trump speech right now. Of course, there's also a CPAC straw poll. Um, We're still early in the primary process, obviously, yet it sounds like there's no confusion about the straw poll results. Uh, Donald Trump will be on top. Yeah, it's kind of one of those CPAC traditions that's also kind of changed over the years. But I would argue that this year's straw poll is going to be interesting just for different reasons. I mean, everyone here expects Trump will win the nomination. So the attention is on who's going to be Trump's pick for vice president. And this year, in addition to picking a Republican nominee, attendees are also going to be asked in the poll who should be Trump's running mate. And several potential running mates may have big or do have big speaking slots, including Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, Senator J.D. Vance, and former presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. I mean, this is a big stage, perhaps the biggest for the Trump faithful. And you can bet Trump's going to be watching to see how they perform and how their their message resonates with the most faithful Trump voters. NPR's Franco Ordonez, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you, Scott. We're going to turn now to NPR senior Washington editor and correspondent Ron Elving. Ron, thanks so much for being with us. Good to be with you, Scott. As we just noted, President Trump addresses uh, CPAC today. Nikki Haley isn't there. She is focusing attention on the South Carolina primary. What do you expect? In South Carolina, there's little doubt about the outcome. Polls all show Trump with an enormous lead. He will win the statewide tally, and he may win each of the individual congressional districts as well. That would mean the former governor of the state, Nikki Haley, would get no delegates at all, a shutout. Nonetheless, she has said she will soldier on beyond this particular primary, says she's in it at least to Super Tuesday in March, but we shall see. Trump, meanwhile, will be in the warm embrace of that CPAC conference that Franco's been talking about, an annual gathering that's been around since the 1970s and has shown interest in different kinds of conservatives over the years. Uh, The libertarian candidate for president, Ron Paul, and later his son, Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, have been very popular at this convention. Uh, But it's very much a Trump show now. Both Trump and Haley say they support efforts to protect in vitro fertilization. 
course, they also both notably celebrated the overturning of Roe versus Wade. What's the note they're both trying to strike here? Opposition to Roe versus Wade was a major building block in both Haley and Trump's careers, and both have celebrated the Supreme Court decision in the Dobbs case that overturned it. Uh, but this week, the Alabama Supreme Court took advantage of Dobbs to rule that the embryos produced in the process of in vitro fertilization had the legal state the legal status of children under Alabama law. So in vitro clinics in Alabama started shutting down and clinics elsewhere wondered what might be next for them. Now this issue highlights the problems with the Dobbs decision and divides the anti-abortion movement itself. Uh, Some of the movement's longtime strong backers, such as former Vice President Mike Pence, have actually made use of this procedure and are great advocates for it. So yesterday, after days of silence on the subject, uh, Trump came out for IVF and urged the Alabama legislature to act quickly and protect it. Now, Nikki Haley initially responded to the ruling, saying that she had always considered embryos to be babies. But she shifted as the week went on, saying IVF should remain available. And Ron, if, as the governor of Alabama pledges, the, the legislature codifies protections for IVF, does the issue fade away? It might. In the current media climate, almost nothing seems to have much staying power anymore, especially if it requires a certain amount of information to understand. On the other hand, many Americans are still trying to sort out how they feel about the issue of abortion themselves and how much of a role the government should have in the reproductive process. So this surprising and jarring moment may reverberate for some time. Two years ago today, Russian troops started their way towards towards Kiev. Of course, uh, further support is tied up in the U.S. Congress. What are your thoughts two years in? The situation in the war zone is not what anyone expected two years ago. The Russian thrust at Kiev failed utterly, but the effort to occupy the portions of Ukraine nearest to Russia has proven difficult to resist. Uh, The loss of human life on both sides has been enormous, and the scale of destruction recalls the worst scenes of the world wars in the 20th century. Most Americans still support Ukraine and oppose the designs of Russian leader Vladimir Putin, especially in the wake of the death of Navalny and all that has come since. But there is a growing sentiment, especially among Republicans loyal to Trump, and that includes in Congress, that the United States should scale back or even cut off its support for Ukraine and perhaps reduce its commitments to other countries around the world as well. It's a throwback to the America First movement and the attitudes before World War II, and no accident that Trump himself uses that same phrase in his campaign, America First, and it's the reason that aid to Ukraine is still awaiting a vote in the House. NPR's Ron Elving, thanks so much. Thank you, Scott. How do you honor a legend? Paul Powell was an Illinois Secretary of State and a former Speaker of the State House who famously picked up the scent of political deals and said, I can smell the meat of cooking. He left behind plenty of smoking pork. When Paul Powell died in 1970, about $800,000 in cash was discovered in shoeboxes and attache cases in his closets. He also had a million dollars in racetrack stock. Horse racing is a state-regulated enterprise. I just stored baseball cards in shoeboxes. Why didn't I think bigger? The IRS lawyers in the state of Illinois took their cut of Paul Powell's ill-gotten gains, and the rest of his estate has been used to maintain his home 
In Southern Illinois is a museum for his memorabilia, shoebox not included. But that fund has run out. Paul Powell's home may go on the block. A University of Illinois study finds that despite all vows to abolish shoebox and pork barrel politics, Chicago remains the most corrupt city in the nation, judged by the per capita number of indicted officials. Illinois is the third most corrupt state. Four of Illinois' last ten governors have gone to prison, three Democrats and one Republican. It says Land of Lincoln on state license plates, but perhaps there should be fine print below, handcrafted by a former governor. I will attest as a son of Illinois that many citizens are appalled by corruption. Yet we can also be slightly proud when the Cubs, Bulls, and Bears have losing seasons in the league of political corruption we're still champs. Maybe Illinois should just embrace its history and establish the site of Paul Powell's old home in southern Illinois as a theme park for political profiteering. Call it Paola World. Instead of a ride called Pirates of the Caribbean, Pirates of Vienna, Illinois. Children can pose behind iron bars alongside AI reproductions of convicted public officials. Smile, kids. Say shoeboxes. Disney theme parks offer a princess experience where children and tiaras can meet actors costumed as Jasmine, Belle, or Elsa. Why not a governor's experience at Paola World? Families can slip cash to someone in a suit with perfect hair who can tell them, as Governor Rod Blagojevich would said about the chance to appoint someone to an open U.S. Senate seat, I've got this thing and it's effing golden. And of course there'll be a restaurant at Paola World. You know what they have to serve. Pork. Break me off a piece of that pork chop, baby. Break me off a piece of that meat. Break me off a piece of that pork chop, baby. Look good enough to eat. Break me off a piece of that pork chop, baby. Break me off a piece of that meat. You're listening to NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Thanks for joining us this Saturday morning on 90.9 WBUR. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are the contenders in today's South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Tonight at 7 on WBUR, listen for live special coverage of the results in what could be a pivotal moment. WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Become a certified psychoanalyst and earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand how you can help your patients develop emotionally fulfilling lives. All prior master's degrees qualify for psychoanalytic training. Now accepting applications for fall bgsp.edu. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. The polls are now open in the Republican presidential primary in South Carolina. Former President Donald Trump is heading into the day in a strong position. Regardless of the outcome, Nikki Haley, a former South Carolina governor, is vowing to move on through the primary process. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg is among the world leaders sending messages of support to Ukraine on the two-year anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion. Several Western leaders have gathered in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv, in a show of solidarity, among them the prime ministers of Italy, Canada, and Belgium, and the president of the European Commission. I'm Luis Schiavone, NPR News, Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from SmartMouth, committed to the prevention of bad breath for 24 hours with zinc ion technology. SmartMouth products can be found nationwide at drugstores, grocery stores, and supercenters, or at smartmouth.com. From Progressive Insurance, with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Fertility doctors in Alabama are anxiously watching state lawmakers following the decision of the Alabama Supreme Court that frozen embryos have the same rights as children, prompting at least three clinics to pause IVF procedures. Now lawmakers in Birmingham say they're working on a bill to protect that fertility treatment, but as member station WBHM Scott Hodgen reports, patients are already losing access to care. About a decade ago, Christia Rumbly and her husband tried to get pregnant, but after two years of trying with no success, they turned to IVF. Rumbly says it was very stressful. Like for us, we knew we only had one shot at it. However many embryos we could get, we couldn't afford to do IVF again. The procedure yielded several embryos. Two of them were transferred and successfully implanted. Rumbly became pregnant with twins. Her doctors in Alabama froze the remaining embryos. Years later, they transferred another one, which resulted in another pregnancy. Now Rumbly and her husband have two frozen embryos left. They aren't sure if they want to try for another pregnancy, donate the embryos, or discard them. But we are going to move our embryos right now until we can make a final decision. She wants to move them out of state because of the recent ruling. Alabama's Supreme Court said people can sue for the wrongful death of a frozen embryo. Justices say a civil law from 1872 protects all children, including, quote, extrauterine children. The decision sparked national outcry, and it's raised lots of questions for Alabama patients and providers. This feels very much like the door just got blown wide open and we have no idea what's on the other side of it. Dr. Beth Melitia is a reproductive endocrinologist and part owner of Alabama Fertility, a private clinic with offices across the state. The practice announced this week it would stop all new IVF procedures. Melitia says there is a lot of anxiety. Especially from the patient perspective, just so devastating. I you know, have patients who have been calling the last four days, and we are offering the best guidance we can day by day, but that is a constant evolving process. Providers at the Center for Reproductive Medicine in Mobile and at the University of Alabama at Birmingham also announced this week they are pausing IVF procedures due to legal concern. Other clinics in the state are continuing without much interruption. We're going to perform IVF, as we always have. That's Dr. Brett Davenport. He practices at the Fertility Institute of North Alabama. Davenport says he doesn't think state laws were meant to be applied to frozen embryos. He's hopeful state legislators will act quickly to protect fertility care. We are considered a pro-life state, but what, what's so ironic about that is there's not anything a lot more pro-life than a fertility practice trying to help couples who can't conceive conceive a baby. Both Republican and Democratic state lawmakers, as well as Alabama's governor, have expressed support for access to IVF. But until the legislature agrees on legal protections, both providers and families in the state remain in a legal limbo. For NPR News, I'm Mary Scott Hodgen in Birmingham. What role will the United States play in the world? It's a debate that reaches back to the founding of the country, but in recent months, a growing number of Republican leaders 
question some of America's global commitments. At the Munich Security Conference last week with U.S. military aid to Ukraine stalled in Congress, Vice President Kamala Harris invoked memories of pre-World War II isolationism. If we only look inward, we could not defeat threats from outside. Isolation is not insulation. In fact, when America has isolated herself, threats have only grown. Stephen Walt joins us now. He's an international affairs professor at Harvard University. Professor Walt, thanks so much for being with us. My pleasure, Scott. You have urged what you call restraint versus isolationism. What's that? Uh, Restraint is a policy that suggests the United States should be fully engaged in the world. We should trade, we should invest, we should have active diplomacy, and we should have a strong uh, military. There are some circumstances where the United States should be willing to use military force, but we should be using it much less often than we have been doing uh, of late, avoiding the kind of unnecessary wars that we fought in uh, Iraq uh, or the long, ultimately unsuccessful campaign in Afghanistan. And in particular, restraint is about not uh, trying to use American power to reorganize other societies, to transform them, uh, you know, along lines we might prefer. Um, So it's not isolationism at all, which tends to be a label that critics use to try and marginalize people who are opposed to an excessive and unsuccessful American foreign policy. How would this apply to Ukraine? Well, I think, first of all, uh, restrainers would argue the United States should have been much more sensitive to the risks involved of trying to expand uh, NATO endlessly, moving it ever closer to Russia. This is a policy that was inevitably going to provoke a hostile backlash, as indeed it has, and one, of course, in which Ukraine has paid an enormous price. Restrainers support helping Ukraine and have uh, from the outbreak of the war, but thinks this should have been accompanied by a much more energetic effort to bring the war to an end. We should have sought a ceasefire when Ukraine was doing well in uh, the fall of 2022. The United States did the opposite, in fact, and Ukraine is in much worse shape as a result. Would Vladimir Putin only be boldened, uh, emboldened if uh, the United States stopped providing aid to Ukraine? No one knows the answer to this question, and it hinges on what you think his ultimate ambitions were. If you think his primary goal was to prevent Ukraine from gravitating into the West, eventually joining NATO, then an end to Ukraine, which leaves Ukraine as essentially a neutral country, might be uh, sufficient. And uh, I think there's relatively little evidence that he wants to sort of reinvent the Warsaw Pact, recreate the old uh, Soviet Union. It's also worth noting that Russia is having enough trouble in Ukraine itself. It took them months to advance a few miles and take uh, one more city. So the idea that Russia is somehow poised to strike into the heart of Europe, I think, is just fanciful. With respect, Professor Walt, hasn't the world made that mistake before, thinking that the Nazis would be satisfied with Czechoslovakia and then with Poland? We could go on. Well, this is the everyone's favorite analogy. The good news here is that Hitlers are relatively rare in world history. There are not that many leaders who have these endless ambitions, and in Hitler's case, an endless appetite uh, willing to take risks. Uh, I don't think Vladimir Putin has uh, those ambitions. You know, it's worth remembering, we think of Joseph Stalin as this great uh, tyrant, but of course Stalin withdrew Soviet forces from Austria in exchange for Austrian neutrality. Stalin never made a serious bid to 
advance uh, beyond what the Soviet Union had gotten in, in World War II. So we have to recognize that even tyrants have limited ambitions. And I think basing all of American foreign policy on one particularly dramatic episode in history is probably a mistake. Would the U.S. declining to materially support Ukraine now encourage China to move on Taiwan? That's a harder question. You never know what conclusions uh, that Chinese are drawing from this, but I think the situations are really different in many respects. I mean, first of all, one of the lessons that China ought to learn from the war in Ukraine is that the best laid military plans often do not work out that well. Secondly, they should note the response that Europe and the United States made to the war in Ukraine. And I think that's what China has to uh, worry about if it contemplates doing anything. Uh, finally, it's worth just noting that the more time, attention, resources the United States pours into Ukraine without much prospect of reversing the military situation there, the less time, attention, and resources it can devote to the balance of power in Asia. So you could argue that if we could get the war in Ukraine to be settled, that in fact would be a sign to China not to take a uh, grab for Taiwan. Analytically, Professor, what do you make of the profile in these events of the Republican Party? Has it changed under Donald Trump? Yeah, I think there's no question uh, it's changed in a variety of ways. I don't think of Trump as necessarily an isolationist. Uh, he's, I think, as much a unilateralist as anything else. But he has certainly opened the door to a sort of views that are unorthodox uh, in the tradition of American foreign policy. I also think what Trump and some members of the GOP have tapped into is uh, frustration with the course of American foreign policy over the last 30 or 40 years, where the optimism that greeted the end of the Cold War hasn't been followed by a series of successes. Instead, you've had a series of costly failures or tragedies that we're running around the world doing lots of different things and it's not working very well. And in fact, key constituencies here at home are being neglected as a result. Stephen Walt, International Affairs Professor at Harvard University. Thanks so much for being with us, sir. Nice talking with you, Scott. How did the decimal point come to be? The dot that divides whole numbers? Historians are revising its origin story. Glenn Van Brummelen studies the history of math and astronomy at Trinity Western University in British Columbia. He was working at a math camp for middle schoolers when one night he and a colleague were translating a Latin manuscript. I was working on the manuscript of this astronomer, Giovanni Bianchini. I saw the dots inside of a table, a numerical table, and when he explained his calculations, it became clear that what he was doing was exactly the same thing as we do with a decimal point. And I'm afraid I got rather excited at that point. I uh, grabbed my computer, ran up and down the dorm hallway looking for colleagues who still hadn't gone to bed, saying, this person's working with the decimal point in the 1440s. I think they probably thought I was crazy. He traced the decimal point back 150 years further than previously thought to a little-known mathematician in Ferrara, Italy, named Giovanni Bianchini. He was using the decimal point actually in two different contexts. We don't exactly know which was first, but probably he was using it in conjunction with a surveying instrument uh, to find distances across fields or altitudes of buildings and so on. 
But then what we hadn't been entirely clear on is that he ended up borrowing this for his work in astrology. He was an administrator for the court in the Duchy of Ferrara. And one of his roles at that time would have been to cast horoscopes, to be able to see into the future. Should we make clear that when you say astrology, this wasn't what we think of as, uh, you know, Pisceans or fish and have two faces, but the position of planets? Yes, that's right. What we read in the newspapers today is uh, what's known as sun horoscopes, and they're very, very simplified compared to the practice of astrology back in the 15th century. The mathematics that's required means you need to be able to know exactly where the planets are at any given time. And this is a very complicated mathematical problem. You might remember the sign from your trigonometry experience in high school. Obviously, they didn't have a calculator to compute these quantities, so they would have compiled tables for the sign, for instance. And so suppose you're using this table, it tells you what the sine of 43 degrees is, it tells you what the sine of 44 degrees is, but planets don't just hop from one degree number to the next, they travel continuously between them. So there are going to be moments when you're going to have to work out the sine of a number that's between 43 and 44 degrees. And that's where we find the dots in his tables are in the process of finding a sign that fits between two values in the table. What's the significance of this finding, do you think? With Bianchini, we can see that this decimal system came from real-life problems like surveying and measuring, and a real-life problem at the time would have been the astrological needs for the court at Ferrara. And that's actually the power of our decimal fractional number system. The fact that you can use the same number system to balance your checkbook, to measure distances, to transfer it to all sorts of different contexts. It's a universal system. And so I would say the point to remember, forgive the pun, is that it shows that mathematics comes from all sorts of concerns all over human experience. Mathematics historian Glenn Van Brummelen, thanks so much for joining us, Professor. Thank you. You're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. Middle school is a place for math, science, and reading, and for children to explore the world. Member station KUNM's Mia Casa visited one school in New Mexico that's using opera to do that. In a classroom at the private Albuquerque Academy, about 20 middle school students are singing and dancing around a piano with their shoes off. This is the Academy's Opera Club. They create one opera each academic year, and despite the bouncy tune, this particular production deals with tough issues, climate change and immigration. It's called Problems with the Apocalypse. Each opera seems every year has had some kind of connection to the current events. 
Teacher Becca Holmes started Opera Club seven years ago after working at the Santa Fe Opera. This year's creation is about twin alien brothers who have to evacuate their planet due to a climate crisis. The twins don't find the warm welcome on their new planet that they expected. I think immigration is the story of our time. And yes, he's an alien coming from another planet, but that doesn't really change a lot of the theme of the story. That's kind of a powerful piece of it. Opera Club themes have ranged widely over the years and have included female liberation, friendship, greed, capitalism, pollution, toxic masculinity, and redemption. Evan Daich is 11 and wrote two of the songs for this year's performance. He's been writing music since he was seven. I do the opera club because I feel like it's just a very good way to express art's potential as far as composing, acting, singing, set design. Holmes says she started with the drama club, but had dreams of something different. I feel like we need more spaces like that where kids can just open up and be kids and discover the things around the world that are meaningful to them and to explore the problems that they face. Holmes roped in Edmund Connolly, who teaches chorus and other music classes here. The two wanted to create a space for all students to feel that they belong. Connolly says opera includes a much wider student body than other activities. If you do something that's purely music, then the students who are really strong and confident in that will get involved. If you do something that's purely acting or playwriting, it'll attract those students. If you do something that's about creating visual art, it will attract those students. If you do something that's about playing around with machines and trying to make stuff work, then there are kids who will want to do that. This includes all of those kids. At the beginning of each school year, the teachers have students brainstorm ideas. This year, they voted on something like, oops, I married an alien. They draft a libretto, and as spring semester starts, they go into production mode. Students take various roles as the opera comes together. It's like a puzzle, and everyone is a different piece. 11-year-old Max Berger is the stage manager. He said he was never a theater guy, but realized he likes working behind the scenes. It makes him feel... Just maybe proud or something because, I don't know, I just get to, like, do a lot with the opera and, like, I really get to collaborate with everyone, which is, is really cool and I get to know everyone a little better. Students at Albuquerque Academy performed Problems with the Apocalypse this month. Next fall, the club will start brainstorming for the opera club's eighth season. For NPR News, I'm Mia Casas in Albuquerque. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Governor Healy is calling on Stewart Healthcare to leave Massachusetts. The state had set a deadline of yesterday for the for-profit healthcare company to provide financial documentation, but what Stewart submitted was incomplete. Stewart runs nine hospitals in Massachusetts and recently disclosed severe financial problems. In-person early voting for the presidential primary begins today in Massachusetts. That runs through Friday, March 1st. Today also is the last day for residents to register to vote in the March 5th primary. 
MBTA passengers are dealing with scheduled service disruptions this weekend. The red lines close today and tomorrow between Harvard and Broadway stations to accommodate tunnel work. The T is providing free shuttle buses, and the commuter rail is free this weekend between Porter Square and North Station. Meanwhile, a big section of the Green Line remains closed for track work through March 8th. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Mass General Brigham Health Plan, offering innovative plans, comprehensive coverage, and a broad network of doctors, all connected to one of the world's leading health care systems. Mass General Brigham Health Plan, with you every day. For more information, call your broker or visit MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to a thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This weekend, South Carolina holds its Republican presidential primary. All eyes are on Nikki Haley, who has vowed to stay in the race, but would have an increasingly tough argument for doing so if she loses to Donald Trump in her home state. What are voters thinking? NPR is on the ground in South Carolina with live coverage of the Republican primary. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. From Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Grim news in the news business this week. Vice Media once seemed like a leader in online news. Now it's laying off hundreds of staffers and closing its site, vice.com. BuzzFeed, another digital media upstart, is struggling, and one of our own NPR member stations is giving up on its digital news site. NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik joins us now. David, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. Let's go one by one. Uh, begin with Vice. What's happening there? Well, let's remember what Vice was. Vice was uh, you know, started out of a kind of swashbuckling magazine in Canada that emerged as one of these uh, roaring lions of digital media and saying it was going to upend the way in which media worked. And, you know, through at times progressive, uh, excuse me, transgressive uh, uh, approaches to thinking about sexuality and, and substance abuse and rock and roll and projecting a sort of rebel fun. What's happening here now is the unraveling of all this. You know, Vice uh, went through bankruptcy not so very long ago. They you know, their chief executive, uh, Bruce Dixon, announced the layoffs of hundreds of their uh, journalists and employees. They're shut down Vice.com. They've described what they are going to is a studio model, the idea being uh, that Vice could produce content that would live on through other outlets. You know, the latest in series of, of brutal choices. Vice, of course, had produced a, a very well-regarded TV show for, for HBO, but you know, it's hard to really understand how it sustains itself as a significant force in journalism. And BuzzFeed? BuzzFeed, you know, that whole uh, digital empire similarly in decay. BuzzFeed was going to teach uh, the world of media how it should be done, presenting itself both as a news outlet and as a uh, social media platform. Uh, it had shut down its news side, its Pulitzer Prize winning news side last spring. This week it sold off 
complex networks for a third of a price it bought it for just three short years ago. It's laying off another 16% of its sta- staff. I, I think there are going to be more details uh, unfolding next week. It it w- had gone uh, and been listed on the stock exchange, I believe, in late uh, 2021. More recently, the stock exchange came back and said, hey, we need you to delist. You're not worth enough. It's earned a stay of execution on that. It's a public profit, a company desperately trying to find a path to profit. Common element here? Well, you know, you could argue these are different forms of ownership. Vice uh, is owned by a consortium led by the private equity firm Fortress Investment Group. And what they want is to recoup uh, their investment as best they can after they bought it out of bankruptcy. BuzzFeed, a public uh, entity. But I think you're seeing, you know, the strains in a time in which news, except in, you know, very specific sectors at the top level, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, for example, or in television, news is not really a profit center in the way in which people think of it as being in the digital space. You know, it's very hard for them to make uh, money off digital ads on their own. And it's really hard for them to, you know, they promised these uh, content shops where they'd be making bespoke advertising, use the magic of their own special formulas. And people have found other ways to do it. They, they're going to TikTok. They're going to, to, to Facebook, Meta, and, and going directly to the digital source. Public radio, of course, is not for profit, but uh, not immune from, from the same forces. Our member station in Washington, D.C., WAMU, shut down its digital news site uh, called DCist yesterday. What's the reasoning there? Well, Erica Pulley-Hayes is the general manager at WAMU. Although she's a board member at NPR, she hasn't uh, responded to my inquiries, but she talked to Axios, uh, the the digital news site, and said they were basically pivoting to audio. There had been tough times that she had foreshadowed for her staff uh, financially, uh, questions of ph- uh, philanthropy and the like. The digital site doesn't you know, bring in that kind of money that the uh, uh, audio, you know, podcasting, particularly mm-hmm. broadcast, does for a place like WAMU. She's presenting this as a pivot to audio, but what it does is it shuts down this local digital news site, uh, and it also, uh, uh, you know, gets rid of almost, you know, t- about two-thirds of its newsroom, its reporting staff. This is a blow for the local news scene in D.C. From what you can tell, David, uh, is there more upheaval ahead in the industry? Well, we've just seen, you know, this, uh, the most recent chapters in what, what I've been describing a media recession. The Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal laid off 30 people. The LA Times laid off, you know, uh, you know, something like 10% after earlier uh, layoffs last year. Messenger just shut down, losing uh, hundreds of jobs. Nude has ceded its distribution to, you know, the big digital platforms, to Google and Meta primarily. And when those companies decide they're not interested in news anymore, it's awfully hard for, for these digital sites to get traffic online. NPR's David Folkenflik, thanks so much for being with us. You bet. Time now for StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative, recording and sharing the stories of service members and their families. 1942, in the midst of World War II, the U.S. Marine Corps officially opened its ranks to black men. With the 19,000 black recruits signed up and they became known as the Montford Point Marines after the North Carolina base where they trained. Most of these men have passed away, but through the StoryCorps archive, we can still hear their stories. Do you remember the first time you put on the uniform? Just felt like, oh, I'm a proud Marine, you know. <laughs> I thought I was something. 
I wanted to uh, help fight for our country and also to show that we have the courage and intelligence to do so. We knew we were the best, or we made it our business to be the best of the best. Not mediocre, but the best. That was Private First Class William Pickens, Staff Sergeant Benjamin Jenkins, and Marianne Roberts speaking to her father, Marine Estelle Roberts. And now we're going to hear from Corporal Sidney Allen Francis. After serving as one of the first black Marines, he worked as a New York City police detective, and in 2005, he spoke with his daughter, Candace, at StoryCorps. I wanted to go into the Army, but they said no. And this was World War II? Yeah. They, they stamped my papers Navy, and there was no way in the hell I was going to go in the Navy. Why didn't you want to go in the Navy? I didn't like the, the little hats they wore. The little... <laughs> so then I said, what about the Marine Corps? The guy says, well, you have to go around and see the sergeant major. First thing he said to me, are you a high school graduate? I said, yes, sir. And I went to uh, North Carolina for boot camp. And what was that like? I mean, they were rough. Now, were your drill instructors, were they white or black? No, they were black. But see, they had trained on the white instructors because up to 1942, the Marine Corps had no blacks. And that's why they were extra tough on us. They wanted us to make it. And uh, we did. Well, I have to tell you, when I almost went to jail down there. I was with my buddy from New York. He was in the Marine Corps. And we were going to Raleigh from Montford Point. And we're sitting in the back of the bus. Then the bus stopped to pick up people. And the bus driver came up and he said, uh, you guys will have to get up. So I said, get up for what? He says, these white people have to sit down. I said, we're in the back of the bus. He said, you got to get up. And I lost my head then. I says, we're not getting up. And lo and behold, not even 10 minutes, in comes police with guns drawn. And they took me that night to some little prison camp. And in the morning, I heard, Warden, this is Major Papa, United States Marine Corps. You got one of my boys in there. <laughs> All the, the Marines from Montford Point, they were on six-by-six six trucks with machine guns at the ready. You can see they just wanted to tear that jail down. And when I came up, Major Papa, he says, PFC Francis, you get on that truck. We're out of here. And he hollered back, thank you, Warden, that you didn't hurt one of my Marines. He said, you would have been in trouble. That was Corporal Sidney Allen Francis speaking with his daughter, Candace. He died on February 15, 2014, and his daughter recently came back to StoryCorps. So I didn't know that story before. He had never shared that with me. But it sounded like my father. I wasn't surprised by that at all. You know, a lot of Black men who served this country had to also suffer indignities, even while in uniform. I don't think that they've gotten the credit that they deserve for putting their lives in danger and coming out of it with scars that didn't come from the so-called enemy, but came from within. But what I appreciate about my father is that he used his military service to give him what he needed to build a life for himself and his family. It gave him purpose and it gave him an anchor. And I'm grateful for that. So, so what do you want your grandchildren to know about you? I want them to just remember that I love them, that's all. 
there's nothing exciting about me. <laughs> I'm just a man. Candace Francis interviewing her father, Corporal Sidney Allen Francis, one of the first black U.S. Marines to serve his country. Their conversation is archived along with all StoryCorps interviews at the U.S. Library of Congress. Second City, that famed sketch comedy and improv group, is notably named for its birthplace, Chicago. While many of its illustrious alumni, boy, we could spend an hour listing them, Mike Nichols, John Belushi, Bob Odenkirk, Tina Fey, many more, have become well-known in a certain city just across the river from New Jersey. The Second City has never had an outpost there. Until now, here's reporter Jeff London. Located in a former record shop and club in Williamsburg, the Second City's very first sketch of its new show, entitled The First City Review, is something every New Yorker can relate to. Stand clear of the closing doors, please. And the cast stands very close to one another, as if on the subway. There are so many people on this train. It's really annoying me. We really want to build a show from New York up and not place a Chicago show into New York. Drew Riley, a graduate of the Second City Conservatory in Chicago, is one of the six performers opening the new theater. He says the cast and director worked together for half a year creating the show and played at various clubs in New York City while they developed material. We would ask, you know, what's something about New York that you love? What's something about New York that you hate? <laughs> and the answer to the, both those questions was the same, and it was the train. So many people, there are so many people when the train arrives. We know that there is a really great comedy scene in New York and a demand for comedy-based entertainment, but there is no one doing what we do. Ed Wells is the Second City's CEO, and with the closing of several clubs in New York during the pandemic, he felt there was an opportunity. I mean, New York is the home of Saturday Night Live, right? Saturday Night Live and the Second City have had a relationship since Saturday Night Live started 50 years ago. Its very first cast was filled with Second City alumni from, you know, John Belushi to Dan Aykroyd to Gilda Radner. Nia Vardalos, writer and star of My Big Fat Greek Wedding, spent four and a half years with the company in Toronto and Chicago. It absolutely formed who I am. You enter an institution that is uh, formidable and yet filled with irreverence, where you will be rewarded for being a person who doesn't follow the rules. And yet, you're getting a paycheck and you are part of a union. It's such a good gig that when Second City opened up the call for auditions in New York, within three days, a thousand people responded. 
and they had to cut it off. Jacqueline Uwe is one of the six who was chosen. She says the New York Review is a mix of improv, new material, and some classic sketches from Chicago. One of her favorites is a free association piece for two actors playing spies that was created by a famous alum. This sketch is called CIA, where we're both in trench coats, and that's a Stephen Colbert sketch. The first part is written, and the two actors are sticking to the script, connecting one of the spies to Jeffrey Epstein. Cream of wheat, wheat bread, bread and butter, peanut butter, nut allergy, EpiPen, Epstein. But at a certain point, it becomes improv. Jacqueline Uwe asks her scene partner what she had for dinner, and then her partner takes a suggestion from the audience about the best birthday gift they got as a child. And then the two improvise. We have to get from dinner to birthday gift, and it's just free association. And practicing it is the hardest sketch I've ever rehearsed. The night I went, the birthday gift was Elmo. The free association went on for two and a half minutes. Channing Tatum. <laughs> Potatoes. <laughs> Tater tot. Toys for tots. Sesame Street. <laughs> Elmo. Cast member Drew Riley says part of the exhilaration of doing improv is the possibility of falling flat on your face. It's the reason you go to the circus to watch the uh, acrobats, right? Because you think maybe they might fall. <laughs> but you're thrilled when they don't. You're thrilled when they land the triple somersault. So, yeah, it is, it is a theatrical experience unlike anything else. The doors of the Second City New York have only just opened, but the company hopes they stick the landing for years to come. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. what they say, second city, <laughs> second to none. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News, where B.J. Lederman writes our theme music. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate at Progressive.com, not available in California or from all agents. From the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are on the ballot in today's South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, listen for live special coverage of the results. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University's Office of the Provost, presenting the acclaimed writer David Gran, February 28th at 7 p.m. in the Sci Center. 
Admission is free. Reservations are required at davidgranbu.eventbrite.com. And Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord, owned and operated by women designer goldsmiths, creating custom and original fine jewelry for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. On this week's Wait, Wait, Ray Romano talks about watching himself with his sitcom wife while sitting with his real wife. And she said to me, she goes, you said more to Patty Heaton in that scene than you've said to me all week. <laughs> and, yeah, and I told her, we have writers. It's easy. Uh, I'm Peter Sagal. Join us for the show that takes real life and makes it funnier. That's Wait, Wait from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. From NPR News in Washington, D.C., this is Weekend Edition. I'm Scott Simon. This hour, NPR correspondents from Moscow and Kyiv on two years into the war in Ukraine. Then a jury says corruption and mismanagement cost the NRA more than $64 million. And Tommy Orange's second novel, Wandering Stars, took six years to write, but the story kept him going. The sophomore effort is sort of doomed, but this is just what compelled me to write. And if you're going to be sitting with your work for long periods of time, you have to be pretty convinced about it. And I felt convinced. And an Oscar-nominated film shows the journey migrants risk to reach Europe. Yo Capitano. First, our newscast at Saturday, February 24, 2024. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Louise Schiavone. As South Carolina Republicans consider their presidential primary options, former President Trump will be in the Washington area speaking to the Conservative Political Action Conference. NPR's Franco Ordonez has this preview. The former president is expected to speak directly to South Carolina voters, criticizing his remaining rival, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and encouraging any stragglers to get out to the polls. But Trump is also looking ahead. Caroline Levitt, Trump's campaign press secretary, says it's important for him to address the party faithful. To rally the base, get the president's message in the ears of the people that are on the ground getting votes out in their respective states and counties, not just now in this primary, but in the November general election as well. Also expected today, attacks against President Biden, a cornerstone of every recent Trump speech. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Britain has announced a fresh round of military support for Ukraine. Willem Marx reports the UK's political leaders have united to reaffirm their support for Ukraine to mark the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. This latest British military aid includes more than $300 million worth of artillery shells just weeks after Prime Minister Rishi Sunak promised more than $3 billion in support for this current year. On Saturday, Sunak said the UK was prepared to do, quote, whatever it takes for as long as it takes to support Ukraine, while Labour Party leader Keir Starmer said President Putin's cowardice and barbarity would not prevail. Willem Marx in London. In the Middle East, the bombardment of Gaza continues with health officials in the territory saying that more than 100 people were killed overnight. It comes as the UN warns of the growing risk of famine, with pictures showing Gazans in the north queuing for food in desperate conditions. The BBC's 
Sebastian Usher reports. There's been no let-up in Israel's offensive in Gaza, even as efforts towards achieving a ceasefire have redoubled in recent days. The Israeli army says there's been intense fighting in both Han Yunus in the south and Gaza City in the north. The military says it's killed many Hamas fighters, but the toll on Palestinian civilians has also only continued to grow. A Palestinian who's made his name as a comedian on social media, Mahmoud Zaita, has said that his family home was destroyed by an Israeli strike on Friday, killing at least 23 people. The BBC's Sebastian Usher reporting the U.S. military says an 18-mile oil slick has been created by a Yemeni Houthi attack on a British-registered Lebanese-operated cargo vessel six days ago. The vessel was struck while sailing through a strait connecting the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. U.S. Central Command says the ship was transporting more than 41,000 tons of fertilizer, which, if that cargo spills into the Red Sea, would worsen what's already an environmental disaster. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden is facing two ethics investigations from his time running for office in 2022. One of those investigations is from the state's Office of Bar Counsel, which investigates lawyer misconduct. The State Ethics Commission is conducting the other investigation. The Boston Globe says both are looking into whether Hayden used his position as DA to boost his campaign against his opponent in that race, Ricardo Arroyo. Arroyo filed complaints regarding Hayden's statements about investigations into sexual assault allegations against Arroyo when Arroyo was a teenager. Hayden's attorney declined to comment on the probes. Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says she wants to see student debt relief expanded to more people. Nearly 2,500 people in Massachusetts had their loans forgiven yesterday under a new program from the Biden administration. Presley told WBUR's Radio Boston that she's encouraged by that progress, but that more needs to be done. I'm going to continue to advocate for broad-based student debt relief because the executive action we push uh, the president to take would have benefited 43 million Americans. That executive action was blocked by the Supreme Court last summer. The state's chief election official will be at a West Roxbury polling place today as early in-person voting gets underway for next month's presidential primaries. Secretary of State Bill Galvin says more than 60 percent of Massachusetts voters are registered as unenrolled, and Galvin says that gives voters more options. They can choose a ballot from any party and do not become a party member. So if they wish to vote in a party other than one they traditionally vote in, they can do that. They do not become a party member and therefore are free to vote in another primary or a different primary later on. Today is also the deadline to register to vote or to switch parties for the March 5th primary. It is 38 degrees in Boston with increasing sunshine today and temperatures in the upper 30s. Low dropping to about 17 degrees overnight. Tomorrow is sunny Sunday and highs in the upper 30s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, supporting creative people and effective institutions committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. More information is at MacFound. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Thank you for joining us. Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine two years ago today. It's the biggest attack on a European country since World War II. 
Me and my husband, we are now about to leave Kiev. It's our yeah, Mariupol Mayor Vadim Boychenko says Russian forces have smashed trains, destroyed bridges, and are blocking supplies. I think you will hear the bomb now. The aircraft with bombs flying. It's the Russian government who is the terrorist in this situation. Russia expected a quick win. Ukraine predicted a Russian defeat. Neither has achieved what they'd hoped. We want to talk about the state of the war now with NPR's correspondents in the two capitals, Joanna Kakissis in Kiev and Charles Mainz in Moscow. Thank you both for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Joanna, let's begin with you. How is the war anniversary being felt in Kiev? Well, President Volodymyr Zelensky's government is trying to put on a brave face and project strength. Uh, world leaders are in Kiev today to stand by Zelensky. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau are among them. But the mood in Ukraine is one of anxiety and sadness. I keep uh, thinking about the mother of a POW, a prisoner of war I met, a week ago in northeastern Ukraine in a village not far from the Russian border. Her name is Natalia Kucherenko, and she has not seen her son Vova in two years. Every time there's a prisoner exchange, Natalia stands on the road holding a giant banner with her son's face, hoping he's among them. My producer, Polina Litvinova, is interpreting for Natalia here, and as you can hear, they're both I'm standing like for five hours, for seven hours, whether it's rain or even when it was like the frost, like minus 25, I was standing in the street because I'm waiting for my son. And after two years, Natalia looks gaunt and haunted as if she's a prisoner of war herself. And Joanna, do a lot of people in, in Ukraine seem to feel that way? Yeah, for sure, especially now. Last year, there was hope for a quick victory that Ukraine would get all its territories back. But a counteroffensive last year failed to retake significant amounts of land. And then by years and weapons, especially ammunition, began running low. Europeans promised a million artillery shells last year, and not even half of these have been delivered. And meanwhile, future USAID Ukraine is up in the air. Charles, let's turn to you in Moscow. How's the uh, two-year anniversary being marked there? Well, we had a massive fireworks show here in Moscow last night to mark Defender of the Fatherland Day. It's a Soviet holiday with roots in the USSR's victory over Nazi Germany. And of course, for Russian President Vladimir Putin, it's yet another chance to draw full circle these false historical parallels uh, between the war against fascist Germany and his invasion of Ukraine today, which he did in a video address to the nation. Let's listen into a bit. So here Putin says today's soldiers and officers are continuing Russia's glorious battlefield traditions in Ukraine and calling them true national heroes and vowing to give them everything they need to fulfill the tasks ahead. Charles, there have been reports we've seen of Putin seeking backdoor negotiations with the U.S. that would be aimed at at ending or freezing the conflict. Any evidence of that you see in Moscow? Well, in comments here, Putin insists Russia's goals are still to denazify and demilitarize Ukraine, which doesn't sound like he's seeking much of a compromise. Moreover, Russia's in a much stronger position this year than it was if we'd had this conversation a year ago, uh, for many of the reasons that Joanna just outlined. You know, and indeed, uh, Putin projects confidence in his speeches and his actions. Just this week, we saw him uh, fly a supersonic bomber uh, and drive a truck over a newly constructed road. All not so subtle messages that we can win in Ukraine and still thrive economically uh, despite Western sanctions. Joanna, what is the uh, Ukrainian military point of view right now? 
Well, the lack of military aid is uh, clearly being felt on the battlefield. A week ago, Ukrainian troops were forced to withdraw from the eastern town of Avdivka, which had managed to hold back the Russians for 10 years. It's been on the front line since Russian proxies backed by Russian troops invaded and occupied parts of eastern Ukraine back in 2014. In Avdivka, Ukrainian troops were outnumbered and outgunned. They were rationing ammunition. The Russians had almost encircled them. And during the withdrawal, there were reports of wounded soldiers being left behind and the Russians capturing Ukrainian soldiers and then executing them. And now the Russians are advancing along several points on the eastern front line. Charles, I want to uh, ask you, you were on a show last week talking about the death and the legacy of Alexei Navalny. Putin said anything about him, about that death? You know, he hasn't, uh, despite the world's attention focused on these really macabre events unfolding in the Arctic town where Navalny's body is currently in a morgue. You know, for a week, we've seen Navalny's mother, Ludmila Navalnaya, trying to retrieve her son's remains, and clearly the authorities are blocking her from doing so. Navalny's team said these delays are intended to cover up wrongdoing, in other words, his murder, uh, a charge the Kremlin through its spokesman denies. Uh, but whatever the case, it seems clear the Kremlin does not want any public mourning over Navalny's death here. And it's why we've seen pressure by the state to force Navalny's mother to agree to a secret burial. In fact, she says investigators are threatening to bury him on the grounds of the prison where he died if she doesn't agree to their terms. Joanna, let's turn to you for some thoughts about what Ukrainians seem to be hoping for in 2024. Well, at the very least, the Ukrainians are hoping to keep the Russians from advancing. Ukraine is making its own weapons, hoping to at least offer some supplies to their troops. They're continuing to lobby their Western allies, especially Republicans in the U.S., to keep up support. And to increase morale, Ukrainian leaders are focusing on some wins, especially in the Black Sea, where special forces pushed back Russia's naval fleet by attacking it with Ukrainian-made sea drones. And Charles, what's the view from Moscow? You know, amid all this projected confidence from the Kremlin, there are certainly tensions bubbling below the surface, uh, among them the demands of these families of some 300,000 civilians who were mobilized for the war over a year ago. These families are now protesting openly for the return of their loved ones from the front. Uh, meanwhile, we have tens of thousands dead, hundreds of thousands injured, and at what gain? You know, Russia claims uh, to have annexed four more territories from Ukraine in name, but it still doesn't control any of them fully, at least not yet. And so we see growing signs of war fatigue here, even among Putin supporters. In an environment where criticizing the war can land you in jail, a poll show a majority of Russians would welcome Putin declaring the war over tomorrow if the Kremlin leader were to do so. NPR's Charles Maines in Moscow. Joanna Kakissis in Kiev, thank you both very much. You're welcome. Good to be with you. It's Republican primary day in South Carolina. Both former President Donald Trump and the state's former Governor Nikki Haley have never lost an election in South Carolina. That will change today for one of them. NPR's Stephen Fowler is in Columbia, South Carolina. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning. Uh, Trump is running as a kind of de facto incumbent. Uh, he had a rally. Uh, he's at CPAC today in D.C., but he had a rally in Rock Hill, South Carolina last night. What did he tell people? Well, Scott, it was typical Trump fare, railing on President Joe Biden and Democrats, recapping achievements during his first term, and previewing what he'd do if elected again. That includes things like mass deportations and a push for more tax cuts. But what's been notable recently on the campaign trail is this dire tone, both from Trump and his supporters, about this election and what would happen if he didn't return to the White House, like this comment about the economy if he loses on Election Day, which is November 5th. If we have a tragedy happen 
on November 5th, it would be a tragedy. In the opinion of many, and in my opinion, you will have the largest stock market crash we've ever had because a lot of the stock market, because the only thing that's doing well is the stock market, and it's doing well because the polls are all showing that we're winning by a lot. I mean, there's many reasons Trump is doing so well in the GOP primary, but this vibe of him losing as an existential threat to the future of America is becoming a dominant part of his messaging. And let me ask you about Nikki Haley. Of course, she was Trump's ambassador to the U.N., uh, but before that, South Carolina's governor. And yet uh, the polls indicate that she's trailing substantially. If she loses today, is it the end of her presidential campaign? Not according to Haley, who gave a state of the race briefing this week that keeps the lights on for a few more weeks, no matter today's outcome. I'll keep fighting until the American people close the door. That day is not today. And it won't be on Saturday, not by a long shot. The presidential primaries have barely begun. Haley's main argument is that Trump and President Joe Biden are too old and that the country needs a younger, more competent leader. Pointing to the 91 criminal charges against Trump, Haley also says he's the chaos candidate that may excite the Republican base but hurts the party in races where it counts. The thing is, though, that's about the only daylight between Trump and Haley. They have largely the same policies and stances, and she was even part of his administration as U.N. ambassador. And as you just heard, her argument is that the race isn't over because only a small handful of states have voted. If Donald Trump wins today's primary contest in South Carolina, as currently projected, if Nikki Haley stays in the race, as she is currently pledged to do, uh, how do things move ahead? Well, Scott, for the Trump campaign, it's simple. He's winning, plans to keep winning, and is itching to fully pivot to the general matchup between President Joe Biden. For the Haley campaign, it's a little bit different. They're making a multi-million dollar ad buy heading into Super Tuesday, where more than a dozen states have primary contests in two weeks. They've acknowledged it's an uphill battle, but there are a few factors at play here. One, Haley has the money to keep going past South Carolina. Two, Haley's still winning a meaningful share of the primary votes, even if it isn't translating to winning the delegates needed to get the nomination. So barring any unforeseen circumstances, Nikki Haley will not win the GOP presidential primary in South Carolina or the party's nomination. But her argument is more about what's coming in November, namely that she says Trump can't win a general election. And Pierre Stephen Fowler in Columbia, South Carolina. Stephen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. And you're listening to NPR News. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Thanks for sharing some of your Saturday with us here on 90.9 WBUR. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are on the ballot in today's South Carolina Republican presidential primary tonight at 7 on WBUR. Listen for live special coverage of the results. WBUR supporters include Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Earn your doctorate in psychoanalysis. Better understand your clients. Build your clinical skills and advance your career in the psychoanalytic training program. Master's graduates from all disciplines welcome to apply. Now accepting applications for fall. Learn more at bgsp.edu. 
and Music Worcester, presenting Orchestre Metropolitain de Montréal, led by Yannick Nézé-Séguin. Mechanics Hall, Sunday, March 3rd. Tickets at musicworcester.org. I'm Louise Schiavone with these headlines. South Carolina Republicans today go to the polls in the state's presidential primary. Former President Donald Trump is strongly positioned in the race, but his opponent, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, says she will continue her campaign regardless of today's outcome. Britain has announced a fresh round of military support for Ukraine as the U.K.'s political leaders unite to reaffirm their support for Ukraine on the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. In the Middle East, the bombardment of Gaza continues, with health officials in the territory saying that more than 100 people were killed overnight. The U.N. is warning of the growing risk of famine. I'm Louise Schiavone, NPR News, Washington. Support for NPR comes from the station and from Made in Cookware. Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From Subaru, who along with its retailers, is partnering with Operation Warm to provide more than 150,000 children in need with new necessities like coats, shoes, and socks. Subaru, more than a car company. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. The top leaders of the National Rifle Association have been found by a jury to be liable for corruption and mismanagement. The jury ordered two of them, including longtime CEO Wayne LaPierre, to repay roughly $6.5 million dollars. Here's Brian Mann, who's in the courtroom in Manhattan yesterday. Brian, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Scott. What did the jury verdict say? Well, really, Scott, this jury validated damning claims laid out by New York State Attorney General Letitia James and her team over this six-week trial. They argued that LaPierre and other NRA officials basically fleeced the gun group using donations from gun owners to pay for luxury vacations, private jet flights, and a lot of other perks. In all, New York State says mismanagement and corruption cost the NRA roughly $64 million. LaPierre is now on the hook for about $4.4 million he'll have to pay back. Another executive, Wilson Phillips, will have to pay back roughly $2 million. They do say they're going to appeal, uh, but in her statement, Attorney General uh, James called this a victory over what she described as corruption and greed at the NRA. Wayne LaPierre has led the NRA for three decades. What was his reaction? Yeah, he's an important figure in all this. LaPierre was instrumental in pushing the NRA, which used to be a hunting and sportsman's group toward this much more hardline stance on guns. He sat in court yesterday listening as the jury ruled against him and his leadership on point after point. Uh, after the verdict was read out, LaPierre walked past us, past reporters outside the courthouse. Uh, he stared straight ahead, Scott, no expression. He wouldn't answer our questions. It's really a huge fall from grace for this once very powerful figure. He's 74 years old and stepped down last month on the eve of this trial, citing health concerns. And where does this leave the NRA? It's been a devastating chapter for the NRA. Beginning in 2018, whistleblowers and feuding members of the organization started dishing dirt on each other. The scandal grew. They've lost money and a lot of members. 
In a statement yesterday, the NRA said it has implemented new governance procedures to protect donor money in the future, but clearly they have lost a ton of influence. They were forced to shut down their television operation. They've got less money now to spend on political campaigns. And, and this jury verdict just adds to the narrative that the NRA has been deeply troubled and mismanaged for a long time. And Brian, let me ask you about Attorney General Letitia James, who brought this lawsuit. Um, let us know a little bit more about her. Who She's become a big name nationally. She has, Scott. She's a Democrat and has emerged quickly as a major national player. This is the same prosecutor, remember, who took on Donald Trump with that big fraud lawsuit accusing him of inflating the value of his real estate holdings. Just yesterday, the judge in that Trump case finalized a judgment against the former president, ordering him to pay $454 million. He has 30 days now to appeal. Now, James's critics have been saying that she brings politically motivated cases. Trump has accused her of mounting a witch hunt. NRA officials in this case also accused her of trying to silence their conservative group's pro-gun message. But, you know, courts keep rejecting those arguments, and her team is building these strong cases, and in the end, she just keeps winning. Any implication in this verdict over gun regulation, gun violence in America? You know, the NRA has been embroiled now in this scandal for five years. Wayne LaPierre, as we mentioned, is out. Uh, the gun group even tried to file for bankruptcy at one point. But it hasn't moved the needle much on the discussion of gun violence and mass shootings. The NRA's hardline stance against gun regulation is now a bedrock principle of the Republican Party. Even after mass shootings, GOP leaders haven't shown any flexibility on that. No one I talked to thinks this verdict is going to open the door to a really different national conversation. Brian Mann, thanks so much. Thanks, Scott. Walmart and Home Depot are cautiously upbeat as they survey the economic landscape. At least that's how it sounded as they reported their earnings this week. And that's because Americans are feeling a little better. The economy almost always tops lists of issues most important to voters. NPR business correspondent Alina Seljuk and NPR chief economics correspondent Scott Horsley join us now. Thank you both very much for being with us. Hello, hello. Good to be with you. Scott Horsley, what's behind this change of mood? You know, people are still unhappy about high prices, but wages have been going up faster than prices now for the better part of a year. Uh, gas prices are still relatively low, although they've been inching up in the last few weeks. And, of course, the stock market keeps hitting record highs, which tends to lift people's spirits even if they don't own a lot of stock. So the University of Michigan's index of consumer sentiment has been on an upswing now since December. Uh, it's not great, but uh, people's mood is getting better. Lini, you've been tracking Home Depot and Walmart. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they, they have to know what shoppers want, what they're willing to pay. That's how they stay in business. We say, you prompted me, they are upbeat but cautious, cautious <laughs> but upbeat. What do we really mean? Yeah, so they're upbeat because shoppers are still going out and shopping. They are cautious because shoppers are still carefully watching their budgets. And also, and this is kind of newish, um, some prices have started to come down. For example, Walmart already says, actually for the first time in a while, that shoppers are spending a bit less each time they visit a Walmart store. Walmart says it's because they've been able to lower more prices. Here's CEO Doug McMillan. In food, prices are lower than a year ago in places like eggs, apples, and deli snacks, but higher in other places like asparagus and blackberries. 
which I guess means you got to watch out for your asparagus and blackberry pie. <laughs> is that a real thing? <laughs> it is now a national public radio. Well, so Someone, Someone's <laughs> going to hear it and try it, but go ahead, yes. Please write to me if you do. Um, Macmillan also called out French bread, actually, which apparently used to be a dollar, then got pricier with inflation, and it's now back to a dollar. You know, if you look at grocery prices overall, they're up just a little over 1% this past year, which is, you know, very modest price increase. Restaurant prices on the other hand are up more than five percent and yet people are still eating out spending at restaurants is still going up now home depot a whole different kind of shopper Mm because they're looking for different kinds of of merchandise. What what did you find out there, Alina? So Home Depot, as a company, has really been feeling the pain of people tightening their budgets for quite a while. Uh, People have been sticking to smaller home improvement projects. People have been delaying big renovations. They've been skipping big purchases like countertops, cabinets, flooring. But even with all of this, Home Depot this week says the consumer is, quote, healthy, And signaling sort of better days are not too far. You know, home improvement stores in general tend to rise and fall with the broader housing market. And we know that housing market's been in a slump because home mortgages are so expensive. Now, home sales did pick up a little bit in January, and they're expected to rebound more as mortgage rates come down this year. Mortgage rates have actually inched up, though, in the last couple of weeks. Right now, they're just under 7%. Not as high as we saw last fall when rates got up close to 8%, but still high enough to keep a lot of would-be home buyers on the sidelines. Alina, um, many sign shoppers are losing their patience. I think a lot of people already have. Actually, what's interesting is we are starting to see that companies are noticing it and they have been starting to change tone. They're saying on prices, you know, maybe we've hit the edge of how much we can charge. For a long time, companies were able to raise prices at will, and even though shoppers would grumble, they would keep buying. Now, companies say they have to think twice about raising prices because they start to lose business when they do. I know when the price of Diet Pepsi got high enough, I switched over to Safeway store brand. And I'm actually the the other example where... I keep seeing the price go up, but I keep buying Coca-Cola, Scott. And so Coca-Cola says it's still making more money because many people like me are willing to pay higher prices. But now Pepsi, for example, is selling fewer Pepsi products. We've heard the same from Hershey and Kraft Heinz. They're saying we're selling less stuff because people are resisting higher prices. They are still making more money, but they're selling less. And so what I'm watching for now is how companies might keep shifting this narrative more toward deflation, talking more about discounts and lower prices. And to make this a real NPR interview, I've got a note. We have have two contrasting viewpoints here, okay? (laughs) We have a Coke drinker and a recovering Pepsi drinker. What are the political implications of what you're discovering? (laughs) Well, we probably have a few more months uh, for people to sort through all the pluses and minuses and figure out what they think about this economy before they lock in their attitudes ahead of the November election. If you're President Biden, you hope economic sentiment continues to improve. If you're Donald Trump, you probably want to play up people's dissatisfactions. And Pierre Scott Horsley and Alina Seljuk, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Good to be with you. And now, it's time for sports! NBA hits midseason, Karth Thunk. MLS, the return of Messi Mania. And baseball's new uniforms. Hey, Skip, you signaling me to bunt? 
Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media joins <laughs> us. How are you, Howard? Good morning, Scott Simon. How are you? Fine, thanks. Uh, let's begin with basketball. Halfway through the NBA regular season, uh, NBA, NBA regular season. <laughs> Boston Celtics seem dominant in the East, but in the West, Minnesota, Oklahoma City, and of course, reigning champs Denver Nuggets. Uh, what have we learned from the first half? Well, the first thing we learned is that the the Boston Celtics are, they are the best team in the league, and it just adds to the pressure. You've got three things in the East, really, that we're talking about. If you start with the Celtics, they are trying to do something that is very, very difficult to do, and that is to shoot as many threes as possible and still win an NBA championship. It's never happened. No team has ever led the league in three-point attempts mm -hmm. and been last in two-point attempts and actually won the championship. But that's what the Celtics are doing. That's their strategy. And they're also up against it. They have been very, very good for a very long time. They've been to five, con they've been to four conference championships and one NBA final since 2017, but have not brought home the uh, 18th championship. Then you've got your favorite over there, Milwaukee. Uh, the best team, supposedly, they go out and they get Damian Lillard. Yeah. Exactly. They go out and they get Damian Lillard, and they've got Giannis Antetokounmpo. And they fire their coach with a 30-13 and 13 record. Adrian Griffin, he's out. They bring in Doc Rivers, and now they're 6-8 and eight since Doc Rivers came back. And then, of course, there's Philadelphia. Joel Embiid, injured. If he comes back, back to a title contender. And then, of course, there's the West. I still have the feeling Minnesota's a great team. The Clippers are actually back. A uh, very good team. I just still get the feeling that when it's go time, the defending champions, Denver Nuggets, are, are, are going to be there. Um, and then, of course, the biggest story in the NBA is the tallest guy in the league, yeah. uh, Victor Wembanyama, who is amazing. I'm in Los Angeles. Saw him against the Lakers last night. And my goodness, uh, he's the future. No, he's the present. He's the everything. Quick question. NBA All-Star Game uh, got some complaints. I think the final score is 300 and 200 to 275. <laughs> uh, is it really a competitive game? It is never, it's not a competitive game. Every sport has their All-Star Game problems, Scott. But the biggest problem that the NBA is really concerned with right now is that they're not even hiding it right now. They're not even trying. There were three fouls called in the whole game. And you just start to wonder if it's not if it's not even going to give the appearance of the best players trying to play. Why do we do this? And I think the NBA has got a real issue with what to do with that going forward. And then, of course, the, the big difference is, Scott, back in the old days when we were growing up, those players had oh. to win. They had to win to earn the big money. Now they've already got the big money. So what's the motivation? What's my motivation, Scott? So what's my motivation, Director? Major League Soccer back. Uh, Lionel Messi, of course, the overwhelming star. And look, Copa America comes here this summer, World Cup. This is a good time. In two years, good time to be a U.S. soccer fan, isn't it? Absolutely. And you've got Messi here. And it is, it is a Pelé type of thing, to be honest. You've got... Maybe the greatest player of all time here. Certainly the best player of his era, along with, with some of the other ones, especially Cristiano Ronaldo and some of the, you know, the, the 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 greats. But this is Lionel Messi. He's here. He's in fact he's here. He's in he's in Los Angeles playing the Galaxy. And um, if you've got a chance to see him, it, yeah. you know, one of the all-time greats. It sort of reminds me of. Uh, I just realized I hadn't seen LeBron James play live in very a lot of years. So did you get a chance to see that in person? Go do it. Just in a few seconds, what do you think of the new MLB uniforms? I think they're see-through. <laughs> Can baseball get it right, Scott? Uh, outsourced to fanatics. This is a bit of an embarrassment. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, it's it's just baseball being baseball. Get it right. Let's play some ball. Yeah. Howard Bryant of Meadowlark Media, thanks so much for being with us. <laughs> My pleasure, Scott. And you're listening to Weekend Edition from NPR News. A popular zombie franchise gets a new spin-off series Sunday with the debut of The Walking Dead, The Ones Who Live. NPR TV critic Eric Deggan says the show, centered on the return of two of The Walking Dead's most popular characters, is an ambitious version of a franchise that's working hard to reach new viewers. Spoiler alert, Eric's review does have some details about the new series, So listen at your peril. I tried. Please no. I tried. That's the voice of Rick Grimes, the earnest hero who hasn't appeared regularly on a Walking Dead show since actor Andrew Lincoln left the series in 2018. Back then, Rick was carted off to an unknown location in a helicopter after nearly dying in a bridge explosion. On the new show, in a handy bit of exposition early in the first episode, he explains what came next. And I woke up in a military hospital. An army found me, a force of thousands, protecting a working hidden city of hundreds of thousands. Security and secrecy above all, that's the army's code, so no one can leave ever. This is how The Ones Who Live builds out the world of the original Walking Dead show, which ended new episodes in 2022. In this new series, Rick is stuck in a hidden city, trying and failing to escape. Rick has always been The Walking Dead's version of Job, tortured by heartbreaking losses and an unyielding drive to protect those he loves. In the new series, he's tortured by visions of the love he left behind and is trying to return to, Michonne a fierce fighter and survivor played by Black Panther co-star Denai Guerrera. Rick misses Michonne so much he dreams about them being together, and even then, she offers him some sage advice. But shut up about your misery. You're not stuck anywhere. Well, you said you're not where you want to be. I'm not, but I'm not stuck either. We can make this whole damn world ours if we want to. That's all Walking Dead fans need to hear to know that their favorite couple will likely soon be back together, fighting the flesh-eating undead known as walkers. The word zombies never uttered in the Walking Dead universe. In its heyday, The Walking Dead was one of the most watched shows on TV, but its ratings dropped as the show aged, cable TV declined, and plot lines got so dense it was tough even for longtime fans to keep up. This story, originally announced as a series of films, got delayed by COVID and transformed into a six-episode series, joining several other spin-off shows centered on the Walking Dead universe. The result is a deliberate tale with sharp action. It balances giving fans a reunion they've waited years to see with a story Walking Dead newbies can easily jump into. The cast includes lost alum Terry O'Quinn, playing a military leader trying to figure out Rick's intentions by describing a different soldier who served with an opposing force but switched sides to save the hidden city. He was with their Air Force. He was supposed to bomb the city, but instead... He bombed 4,000 Marines staging at Lincoln Financial Field. He switched sides. Well, I did too, in a way. 
I'm not sure anybody believes Rick Grimes is giving up on escape quite that easily. The Ones Who Live blossoms into an epic love story between two beloved characters set in a world where the walking dead are often the least of their problems. But convincing former fans that the expanded world and high drama makes this series worth another look, well that may actually be their biggest challenge of all. I'm Eric Deggins. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Sharon Brody in Boston. Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden is facing two state ethics investigations from his time running for office in 2022. The Boston Globe says both are looking into whether or not Hayden used his position as DA to boost his campaign against his opponent in that race, Ricardo Arroyo. Arroyo filed complaints regarding Hayden's statements about investigations into sexual assault allegations against Arroyo when Arroyo was a teenager. New tobacco regulations take effect in Somerville this coming Friday. The city's Board of Health voted in favor of changes that include banning the sale of mint, menthol, and wintergreen-flavored tobacco products. The regulations also require ID checks for everyone buying tobacco. Tonight, the Revs open the regular season on the road against D.C. The Celtics take on the Knicks in New York. The Bruins are in Vancouver against the Canucks. And in preseason baseball this afternoon, the Red Sox play the Orioles. It is 38 degrees in Boston with increasing sunshine today and temperatures in the upper 30s. Low around 17 tonight, tomorrow a sunny Sunday. Highs in the upper 30s. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Scrub-A-Dub Car Wash, family-owned since 1966, offering Scrub-A-Dub Unlimited, designed to keep your car Scrub-A-Dub clean anytime you want. And The Huntington, with John Proctor as the villain, training a contemporary lens on the Crucible, now through March 10th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. This weekend, South Carolina holds its Republican presidential primary. All eyes are on Nikki Haley, who has vowed to stay in the race, would have an increasingly tough argument for doing so if she loses to Donald Trump in her home state. What are voters thinking? NPR is on the ground in South Carolina with live coverage of the Republican primary. That's on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive. Progressive commercial auto insurance protects the cars, trucks, and vans that work to keep small businesses moving forward, including protection while running errands and other tasks, at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And from Cunard, sailing the transatlantic crossing between New York and London on Queen Mary 2, with a commitment to White Star service, fine dining, and entertainment. Cunard.com slash crossing. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Tommy Orange's new novel begins with a young man who lives through an annihilation. The Sand Creek Massacre of 1864 where U.S. Army troops savagely, to invoke a word they often use to describe the human beings they slaughtered, murdered about 230 Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Jude Starr is later sent to the Fort Marion Prison Castle in Florida where his jailer is a devout Christian named Richard Henry Pratt, who believed Native Americans had to be forcibly shorn of their language, culture, and history. He's remembered for this especially noxious quote. 
kill the Indian in him, and save the man. The journey of Jude Star and his descendants is the story of Wandering Stars, the second novel from Tommy Orange, his first. There There was a Pulitzer finalist. Tommy Orange joins us now from Oakland. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. This novel is so beautifully written and so hard to read. Why did you uh, devote six years of your life to writing it? This piece of history was not something known to me This, as far as this historical part. I, I initially uh, set out to write a more straightforward sequel, and I stumbled across this piece of history while I was in Sweden for the Swedish translation of There There. I was at a museum, and I saw a newspaper clipping that said Southern Cheyennes in uh, St. Augustine, Florida. And I, I didn't know why we would ever be in Florida and fell down this rabbit hole of information. And uh, I didn't know how it would connect to there, there necessarily. It was just a piece of history that I became fascinated with. And I was doing uh, some research in one of the books I was reading. There was a list of the prisoners. And one of the characters' names uh, was Star, at the actual prisoner. Uh, and another one was Bear Shield. And that's one of the families from there, there, one of the core families. And I, I realized I was going to try to write this family line. And we should explain you're you're a member of the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes and, and are also biracial. Correct. I wonder if seeing the story, hearing of it, put an expectation and, and the success of your first novel, to be sure, all, all put an expectation on you. Yeah, there was uh, the sophomore effort is sort of doomed and why I would take on a, a sequel when that's already tough to get past the, the sophomore effort. Uh, sequels are also sort of doomed to not be as good as the first. And, but this is just what compelled me to write. And if you're going to be sitting with your work for long periods of time, you have to be pretty convinced about it. And, and I felt convinced. I want to ask you to read a section if I can, about an episode star goes through. I'll just have you read it and introduce the, the story of a life mask. Before we were released from the prison castle, a man came to measure our heads, to make masks of us, molds of our heads with white liquid. He called them life masks. The man wanted to compare Indian heads with white heads. He thought if Indian heads were smaller, that could explain why we were savages. I froze as the thick... Liquid poured over and enveloped me. It was cold and then warm and tight against my face. It got quiet and then it cracked. There were tubes stuck into my nose so I could breathe. I wondered if it was death the man meant by life masks. I thought maybe I was being turned into a thing for them to keep. But a head was a living thing. A face moved and changed all the time. And then I couldn't move mine anymore at all. So I thought, this must be some kind of death, some kind of keeping. The novel moves ahead through generations uh, and then to Oakland in, in 2018, following a shooting at a powwow, which is in your previous novel, There, There. A young man named Orville, who's a member of the Bear Shield Red Feather family, has been shot. What, what brings these events together as you construct it? Well, Orville's story, in a way, echoes his ancestor, Jude Starr. It's a young man running away from a massacre and essentially trying to recover from what that means and sort of a harrowing thing that he has to go through. To be shot 
while dancing in full regalia, it's a lot for him to handle. And addictions run through these generations too, don't they? They do. There's uh, alcohol, laudanum, and then in the midst of this opioid crisis, Orville gets addicted to painkillers. I want to ask you about your book's dedication. For everyone surviving and not surviving this thing called and not called addiction. First, may I ask, were you thinking of people you know? Yeah, yeah. My my life has been shaped and mangled by addiction. I've had my own struggles and everybody in my family has. So it's just been a big part of my life and and my heart goes out to people that that suffer from from this thing because it's it's tough and you know this whole country is facing it right now. How did you begin writing? I mean, I've read you were working at a bookstore. Yeah, I was I was moving the entire fiction section from the back of the store more toward the front. It was a bookstore like they don't exist anymore, huge and dusty and didn't get very many customers. Because we didn't get very many customers, I could just read uh, for the first time. I'd, I'd never, you know, I'd, I skimmed through novels in high school to pass tests, but I never, I never really understood what fiction could do. And so, I, you know, soon after I became a reader, I, I decided I wanted to try writing and spent many years just doing that privately while I worked just all my free time, putting it toward reading and writing as much as I could because I felt like I needed to to catch up. I'm struck by a line that Orville's brother utters, speaking of Cheyenne and Arapaho, everyone only thinks we're from the past, but then we're here, but they don't know we're still here. What's that feel like? You know, it's it's an exciting time right now for representation. Most people in this country don't understand what it's like to never be seen, to never be represented in popular culture. Uh, or if you are, it's a misrepresentation. Our educational institutions almost exclusively teach the Indian, the native person as it relates to pilgrims one month out of the year or maybe just one week. So it's, I think it's a really exciting time, but it has has felt lonely and it's a big part of American history and and for that to be omitted all this time it does something to you I'm not sure if I could spell it out entirely you know that's part of what why I write novels because I can I can think and process quite a bit on the page Tommy Orange his novel Wandering Stars thanks so much for speaking with us thank you Scott It's been three decades since a horror movie won an Academy Award for Best Picture. Later today on All Things Considered, is the genre more serious and Oscar-worthy than critics give it credit for? You can listen this afternoon by asking your smart speaker to play NPR (laughs) or your member station by name. Sedu and Musa are two teens in Dakar, Senegal, who work day jobs in construction and play music at night. And they dream of escaping across the sea to Italy. They're sure they'll be acclaimed, famed, rich, and send money back to their families. The story of their journey across deserts and detours into prison 
and the acts of human courage, cruelty, and kindness that will test, save, or savage them is told in Il Capitano, Matteo Grone's film, who won the Silver Lion Award for Best Director at the Venice Film Festival, and the film is an Oscar nominee for Best International Feature. Matteo Grone, who also directed the live-action Pinocchio in 2019, joins us now. Thanks so much for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Does this film tell what's often considered the missing story of migrants? The idea starts from the, the desire to finally give visual form to a part of the journey that we don't see. I mean, in Italy, we are used to see from years the boat arriving in Sicily when they succeed to arrive. And the ritual count of the people alive and people dead, we know that in the last 10 years, 30,000 people have died trying to reach Europe. And so with time, you get used to listen numbers and we wanted to humanize this number. We wanted to put the camera on the other side in a sort of reverse shot and finally give voice to people that usually don't have voice. I gather you heard a particular story about a 15-year-old that moved you. Yeah. All the movies based on true story and we made the movie together working with the real migrant that made this odyssey. And so the last part uh, of the story is based on this uh, real uh, fact that happened to a boy 15 years old that uh, he had to, to drove a boat and became captain without know how to drive a boat and without even to know how to swim. And he was 15 and he had to saved the life of 250 people with also women and kids and bring them in uh, in Italy. It's an epic journey and it's also a coming of age. It's a story of a kids that leave his country, Senegal, dreaming about uh, reach the Europe. And during this journey, he will change. He became a man. The two cousins are so beautifully played by Seydou Sar and Mustafa Fall. How did you find and cast them? We made casting in, in Senegal. Mustafa was making a, a school of theater and Seydou was living in a small town called Ties, a one hour from the car. The mother of Seydou and the sister of Seydou were actress. And so push him to go to the casting. His dream was to become a, a football player. So he didn't want to go, he didn't want to go to the casting. But the sister pushed him and really the way how he entered in the movie is something really unbelievable and, and also a little bit magic because the day of the casting, the, he went to play soccer instead to go to the casting and, and someone <laughs> from the casting said to the sister, Seydou didn't arrive. So the sister went to look for uh, for the brother and he found him when he was playing and he took him and he brought to the casting. When they arrived, the casting was full and was too late. And when he was going back at home, he discovered that he lost the key. He lost the key. And the key is very symbolic for me. It's very magic. He lost the key. So he came back for look for the key. And when he was looking for the key, someone from the casting noticed that he was still there after a long time, and said, okay, if you are still here, come in, and you will make the casting. Wow. 
<laughs> and a star is born. <laughs> it's really, I mean, it's something that if you put in a movie, it's not believable, but exactly. uh, it happened. It happened like this. Yeah. You see scenes of migrants moving across the desert and then the Mediterranean and almost have to remind yourself this isn't computer graphics. Real people do this every day. How did you film in those conditions? I had the privilege to work on the set with real migrants. All the extra behind the actors were real migrants that helped us to recreate this world and also helped Seydou and Mustafa to understand what you feel when you make a journey like this. Mm. So the extras would tell you, this reminds me of something, This let me tell you how to do this, that sort of thing? Yeah, they were co-directing sometimes because uh, they were telling to me details that uh, is difficult to know from outside. They were very proud to have the opportunity to show finally to the world what does it mean make this journey. And I remember also sometimes I was the, the first spectator because uh, there were scenes where they recreate something that they lived in the past. So I was completely surprised by what was happening in front of me. So more than directing, I was spectator sometimes. And also there were other moments where I felt shooting a scene that they were disappointing by the an actor because it was not strong enough, you know, compared to what they lived in the past. So I, I, when I feel this, I changed the actor once happening. I changed an actor that was not strong enough and I put another one. When he, he, the other one was really strong and when he acted, at the end, there was an applause of 100 migrants that applause because say, this is wow. the real one. This is the, the one that we, we face in the past, not the other one. Wow. You have someone in Dakar tell the cousins, Europe isn't as great as you think it is. It's cold and, and people sleep in the street. Yeah. All of which is true. And uh, the International Organization of Migration says more than 27,000 people have gone missing at sea trying to make that migration since 2014. Yeah. Why do so many people risk their lives to come? For the rights of move, for the freedom, for the desire to have a better life, for an illusion. We shouldn't forget that we send image to them. They have social media like we, we have here. They chat every day with people in Europe or in the States. We, they start to live virtually in, in our world and our world make a lot of promise to them. They see a part of, the, of our world, but they don't see the background that we know. You think that maybe going there, you can become richer and help your family, but it's following for a dream. And the dream, the desire to be free, is more power than any other things. Mm. Matteo Garone, his film Yo Capitano, in theaters this weekend. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks so much. Thanks you for your time. This is Weekend Edition from NPR News. I'm Scott Simon. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. 
From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow today. More at iu.edu. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. Wait, wait, don't tell me is next at 10 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. Nikki Haley and Donald Trump are on the ballot in today's South Carolina Republican presidential primary. Tonight at 7 o'clock, listen for live special coverage of the results here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday. HarvardArtMuseums.org and Boston Medical Center, modeling a new kind of excellence in healthcare built on clinical expertise and equity. Learn more about rewriting healthcare at BMC.org. Since I've set up the legacy gift, I feel proud every time I listen to WBUR, because now I feel like I'm a part of it. Kathy Musty is ensuring a strong future for WBUR with her planned gift. It's so valuable, and I really want that money to do something good. I don't think of it as a gift to WBUR. I think of it as a gift to the entire Boston community. Learn more about planned giving at WBUR.org legacy. I'm here and now executive producer Carleen Watson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.